welcome to Movie Go Around, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello, hello, everybody. I am David Luzader, filling in for Brett Stewart this week, uh, who is off having zany adventures. But in the meantime, it's not just me. No, because, of course, always here is Nicole Davis. Nicole, hello. Hello. I'm excited. I'm nervous. I don't want to screw up this discussion. <laughs> I love no. this movie. Uh, uh, you, you, you I am of the opinion. I did bring this movie to us as a future classic, and I honestly think it was an instant classic, never mind future classic. Um, but yeah, so I'm excited. I'm raring to go. Uh, it, it sounds like it. I mean, I can just, I can feel the energy coming off you there. I don't think we're going to mess up uh, a discussion unless it turns out that we're all horrible people secretly. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And we can't be horrible people because our guest is, is a wonderful person, a returning guest, someone that we are so excited to have back, an actor, a multidisciplinary artist, and a disability rights advocate in Chicago, and of course, a lifelong film nerd, which is why she is here with us tonight. It is Terry Lynn Hudson. Terry, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hello, and I am happy to be here. We are happy to have you. Now, we are discussing a future classic this week, Nicole's future classic. But before we do, I have to announce next episode's movie. It is Around the World. It was my pick, and I picked a movie that I think we've all wanted to bring for a while, but every film podcast was just doing for a time, so we needed to give it a little bit of room before we decided to throw our opinions on there. And that is, of course, Parasite. Yay! So, yeah, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Tune in next episode to hear us talk about that. I'm I'm already excited to talk about it, but of course I'm excited to talk about this week's pick. It is 2017's Get Out. Chris and his girlfriend Rose have been dating long enough that she invites him away for a weekend to meet her parents. At first, Chris reads the White family's overly familiar behavior as a nervous attempt to deal with his and Rose's interracial relationship. But as the weekend progresses, a series of increasingly disturbing encounters leads him to a truth that he never could have imagined. Now, I want to, uh, before we, we dive into this, well, Nicole, you have to give us your rationale why do you believe this movie? You said not just a uh, future classic, but you said an instant classic. Yeah. Uh, what makes you say that? Number one, Jordan Peele knows what he's doing. He had been, I guess, percolating this idea for years before he even started writing it. And so this script has been gone over and gone over and gone over, and it's tight, which is why it won the best screenplay Oscar. But it's also, this is one of the few films that directly addresses race in America, um, that treats it in a horror setting, that's not just a, here's a drama where, you know, here are horrible things that we know happen, this sucks, we need to do better, and presents it in a way that is very entertaining, uh, but also because it's so entertaining, I think it really works its way into your head 
really well. And it's talking to a different audience than normal. It's not just here, you know, here's a bad thing that happens to black people by bad white people. This is a movie about the quote unquote, good white people, and how they are contributing to the racist system. And by using this, you know, allegory about a a rather dramatic thing that, boy, I sure as hell hope doesn't actually happen in real life. Yeah. You know, it's hard to it's hard to exaggerate uh like how bad things can be for black people in the United States, but brain transplants kind of <laughs> just just above, like just above in terms of a an extreme thing. So, and I mean, it's just, it's done so well. I, uh, <laughs> I'm not explaining this well at all. Well, well, you know, let's, let's let it come out through the discussion. I'm sure okay. a lot of those thoughts will be a lot more cogent when we have, I hope uh, so. <laughs> when we have directed them <laughs> with some more of a discussion topics. Before we dive into them, though, I want to know, so this was my first time seeing this movie, um, not because like I had, I had been avoiding it. Um, I'm not, as is well known on this podcast, I am not a huge horror movie person. And so I don't go to horror movies in the theater. And this, like, finding out later, and we'll discuss, like, is it really a horror movie? Or is it perhaps maybe, like, something something kind of else? So I hadn't been avoiding this film. I just, there's so much to watch. And I just had not seen it before now. But I'd love to kind of get the take on everybody's first time uh, with the film. And Terry, since uh, since you're our guest here, I'd love to know, what was your first, did you see this movie in theaters? Um, what was your first time seeing it? I absolutely saw this in a theater. I saw it with my husband and, well, we're going to get real personal real quick here, just because it's significant, with my husband and his girlfriend. And it was my husband's birthday and we hijacked his birthday to take him to see Get Out when we realized <laughs> that it had actually opened that day and we could actually get tickets. And my husband is white and was an extremely good sport because he let two black women drag him <laughs> to this movie at a theater in a mostly black neighborhood where he was one of the only few white people in the audience. And he doesn't do horror either. So he was being an extremely good sport here. And it was fantastic to watch this movie in a theater full of mostly black people. It really was. Like, there was just this wave of understanding in there. Mm -hmm. That was a really... I love the experience of the, the group think you get in theaters. And that, like, group experience where everybody is kind of on the same page through a lot of it, depending on what your audience demographics are. And that's totally what was happening. You know, it's it's nice when everybody's in the same headspace to watch For a sure. movie. Because For then sure. you can really absorb the impact of it together. Yeah. And this is definitely the kind of movie for that. Yeah. No, I could I could definitely see this uh with the right crowd in a theater ha being just a really like awesome experience. Um and Nicole, well I would love to know like you you saw this in theaters, right? Like obviously, you know, you've... I did. I did. Yeah. I live in Salem, Massachusetts, and so I went to see it, you know, the next town over. And while it wasn't an all white audience, it was a mostly white audience, and 
it was an interesting kind of duality because I was watching the movie, but I was also watching the audience. And I'm like, are these guys getting it? I hope they're getting it. I hope they understand <laughs> that this movie is talking to them, you know, that this is not supposed to be directed at somebody else. But I, I think they did. I think everybody managed to figure it out. So, Well, we can only hope. And uh, let's dive into some of our discussion topics here. Um, and I, I have to, at the start here, because uh, he will get mad at me otherwise, but I need to do a, a mention that Bradley Whitford follows Brett on Twitter. And uh, so good, good for you, Brett. We'll talk more about Bradley Whitford in a bit here. Before we really start kind of dissecting i would say a lot of the like the plot um nicole you said that this film is in homage-a-thon it is there are so many little easter eggs and shout outs and uh, sort of taking from the playbook of other classic horror movies there's a good bit of the stepford wives in oh, here yeah. there's a lot of Easter eggs and call outs to The Shining. And then there's just a little hint of Rosemary's Baby thrown in for spice. So, I mean, Jordan Peele is a huge horror fan. He's a tremendous horror fan, as is evinced by this movie and us and The Twilight Zone and, you know, his next project, which I don't know anything about. And I want it to stay that way because I'm going to nope. go in and see it like cold. But I'm assuming probably has some some eerie vibes to it. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm expecting all the great sci-fi horrors, uh, horror films to be represented in that one. And that oh, I want it so badly. <sighs> There's little things th down to the font that they use in the opening credits for Get Out, where they're listing the, the actors' names and things. It's the same font and the same color as the credits for The Shining when... You're talking to Rod at the airport. Someone announces Flight 237, which is a call out to the documentary that was made about weird theories about The Shining. Um, there's, you know, the group photos on the wall in the family house. It's like the family. It's like the tour of the hotel when Jack first gets to the Overlook. Oh, goodness. There was another one. Oh, um, Andre at the beginning when he's wandering through the white suburban neighborhood is saying it's like a hedge maze. Oh, out here uh, yeah mm -hmm. so and i'm sure there are there are more uh in there but yeah he loves he loves those movies man <laughs> <laughs> i'm very happy that those are that they're in there i didn't catch all of them the first time i had to watch again this week uh both with and without the director's commentary on so i got to hear you know, some directors are like David Lynch. And they're like, no, you interpret my film however feels correct for you and doesn't explain anything. <laughs> and Jordan Peele was like, no, I'm going to go full nerd and went into a thousand details. And when he gets to the end of the commentary, he said, you know, I could record this again and give you all different information uh, the second time because there's just so much to talk about in this movie. So, Yeah. <laughs> No, that that's awesome. And I, I again. Did you I spot anything? I, I did not. Terry, did you spot anything that you haven't mentioned? Absolutely, yes. I would actually call Chris's escape sequence at the end an homage to "I Spit on Your Grave." Oh. Ooh, I had not thought of that, but yeah, that makes sense. 
Like, although it's him and not someone on behalf of him, the way that he, well, kills his way out of the house is a, is, it looked a lot to me like I spit on your grave. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that off the top of my head, but like, I, that's, that's a movie that I watched once and tried to like push mostly out of my brain. Um, but it sticks. <laughs> or even like the, the last house on the left. Oh, yep. Mm hmm. Yeah, that that's I would last say house it, on the left. It's I a combination say. of the two because it's him and that's more I spit on your grave. But it really looks like camera wise and shot wise like that ending sequence in the house in the last house on the left. So that's what I was seeing was a callback to just the those two particular ultra violent slasher things. And it's interesting that the movie is not that bloody until you get there. No, oh, yeah. it's not. It saves it then, for the yeah. end. Then it takes off. There's there's barely any actual physical violence, and then you get that complete bloody ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, and, that, and you're talking about Chris's escape there, Terry, I think leads us nicely to uh, one of your discussion topics here, which is that Chris is a gothic horror damsel. What do you, what do you mean by that? Chris absolutely is a gothic horror damsel and a final girl, if you will. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I read a lot of horror. I've been into some gothic horror lately. And just as they drive up to the house, it's just a gender flip on the fact that he has been taken to this big, beautiful, wealthy house, very secluded, middle of nowhere, and is pulled into this family. And in gothic horror tropes, it's usually the other way around, like a woman marries into a family and there's weird menacing things going on. But here you have Chris being brought in and there's this family and something is off about them. And there are shots of him on this huge property and inside this big house. And he is the one who's under threat and menace from these people. And it's a total gothic horror damsel setup. And then he ends up surviving everything and defending himself and running out and being a final girl because everybody else is gone but him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you're right. And it's just I think that it's 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 an interesting race gender flip setup that Chris is the damsel and Chris is the final girl. Yeah, I think yeah. the most recent thing that we've watched uh, for the podcast for that would be Crimson Peak. Oh, yeah, kind of. Yeah, very similar. Oh, I still need to see that. Where she marries Tom Hiddleston and gets swept away to their giant house out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. That's totally the trope. That is totally the trope, and they're doing it here with Chris. Yeah. And also very similar, she's in uh, Crimson Peak, she also ends up kind of being that final girl, making her escape Mm -hmm. towards the end a bit. Yeah. (laughs) She keeps stumbling upon spooky stuff in the house that's creepy and... Giving hints that maybe something sinister is going on. Well, they are the same film. That's what we are uncovering here. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, it's really interesting. Um, I hadn't really keyed into that because not just, I don't see horror in theaters, but I still watch horror. But I hadn't keyed onto that fact that they're playing with those tropes in such a unique way. And that's really cool. That's like a really cool like point to bring up. So thank thank you, Terry, for bringing that uh, to my attention. Absolutely. And there's a lot of lot of weird, creepy things happening in this movie. I didn't find a lot of it to be uh, scary, but there was like there's a few jump scares. And our our first jump scare also reminded me of another film we've done. The invitation was the deer 
hitting the car. Mm. And uh, you said that's kind of the start of the symbolism. And that, yes, there's a lot of symbolism uh, in this film. Yes, <laughs> there is. Uh, but the deer in particular in several ways. One, the deer getting hit by the car evokes his mother being hit by the car when he was a kid. Mm. And he goes to investigate the deer because it's he can't leave it to be alone to die like he left his mother right exactly and you know the there's a little bit of um foreshadowing and that the blood from the deer is only on his side of the car it's a little hard to see because it's a red car apparently you know jordan peele's team couldn't get a different color car on the time the day they were scheduled to shoot so it's like uh we'll make it work so, that's why you'll see there's blood like all over the headlight instead of other uh-huh. parts of the car so that you can see the contrast but then there are deer in the house there are a lot of carved deer heads and you'll see carved lion heads as well mm. so there's predators and prey mm. at play and then at the in the like last half hour of the movie where chris is in the room that you know peel calls the evil feng shui room where he's in that one chair in the center there's the head of the buck that's staring at him and that's Mm -hmm. you know symbolizing both him as the prey animal and they used to refer to you know strong young black men as bucks in the times of people being enslaved and after because you know hey thanks jim crow that's fun um but he ends up using it as a weapon Mm-hmm. at the end like his this is something that jordan peele said you know at the end he sort of finds his blackness and uses that as a weapon to help him escape you know he uses the cotton to block his ears he uses yeah i was gonna yeah the the buck's antlers to kill one of the people on the way out mm-hmm. it's like and he finally finds his voice at the end so yeah so dear <laughs> that's, that's one of the many <laughs> i definitely caught the uh well not the I, I was not aware of the the buck fact that being a, a name for um like enslaved men um but definitely like yeah i caught like okay it's a trophy he's kind of a, a trophy <clears throat> in this in this situation um, one of those ones where it's like it's right there staring you in the face uh, literally for for him, I guess. <laughs> um, but it's also not like so on the point that it's like beats you over the head with it. Yeah. The other animal symbol is the rabbit in this one. It doesn't come up as often as the deer. But in the beginning, you've got the Run Rabbit Run song oh, playing yeah. out of the brother's car as he's chasing Andre. And that's another predator prey thing. And I also noted that, you know, the dessert that they're served at the family dinner is a carrot cake. And I was like, is is that being another hmm. rabbit thing? Is that happening here? Hmm. Are, you, are you feeding the prey before he becomes the prey? Fattening him up before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm, Interesting. All, all makes sense now. Well, looking at our other uh, discussion, and there's like so much, like we could probably spend uh, quite a, quite a long time breaking down the, the the symbolism in this movie um certainly was not over my head with the cotton either 
Um, again, another one that's like, it's right there, like it's right there for you, but it doesn't like beat you over the head with it in any sort of way. I think you're right, Nicole. I think uh, Jordan Peele does know what he's doing maybe every once in a while. Uh, yeah, I'm glad it wasn't. Oh, there's a bathroom off of this room with a big bag of cotton balls in it that are <laughs> labeled cotton in giant letters on the bags. <laughs> Jordan Peele is an extremely smart man. Seriously. Yeah. And he knows how much is enough of a clue for you, but that's not too much. Yeah. Well, it's one way he's definitely a, a smart man, I think we can agree in many ways, is the casting of this film. Yes. Uh, the casting of this film is is pitch perfect. And this is where I'm going At to... At least the parents, definitely. Yeah. This is where I'm going to bring Bradley Whitford uh, back in, because Bradley Whitford... Uh, you know, famously from the the West Wing. Um, I heard some interview, I, I don't remember if it was with Jordan Peele, but, or somebody was talking about Bradley Whitford being in this film. You know, Josh Lyman, he is that kind of like perfect, liberal, white man from media that you know, if you picture like the white Democrat guy, you're probably thinking of, of Bradley Whitford in the West Wing. And uh, now he's here in this movie, play in that role kind of to 11. And of course it's, it's played entirely on its head, but just, oh man, Bradley Whitford, uh, so good in this movie. Yeah. And it's eerie to watch it turned on its head. Like this is, this is a man who's played several roles that, you know, the good white liberal can look up to and aspire to be that smart and quick witted mm -hmm. when confronted with, conservative people arguing with you and making points that you don't like, you know, to just have it on the tip of your tongue and keep your composure and be very woke. And that's who I want to be. And then he's the worst <laughs> as he's <laughs> running awful. the, you know, the, the bingo game. And Oh my God, wait, we'll get, let's come back around to that later when we get to the party. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. And he's just so He's so good. He's so good at delivering the rueful, you know, oh, I know how this looks. Mm -hmm. I know that th this doesn't make us look good. I know that there's, here's my father racing against Jesse Owens, and <laughs> here's, and calling him my man. <laughs> Tell me about this thing. Terry, I see you rolling your eyes. It's, oh, a, uh, it's, a, it's a audio medium, but I will point out for people that Terry rolled her eyes. Yes. At that. Well, I'm sitting there in the theater and I hear thang and I just cringe so hard. So cringy. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> mm -hmm. And Catherine Keener also is like the flip side yeah. of that. She's uh, She's so great. Like she's like more like he's so well-meaning. Uh, where he is doing all these cringy mm. things, but he's selling it with the fact of like, ah, oh, he means like so well. Uh, <laughs> and there's like Catherine Keener, who is just so calm. Her presence is just there and mm. uh, just kind of balancing out him trying too hard. Right. <laughs> right. Doing his, doing his best there. Um, and oh, Jeremy, Jeremy. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Caleb Landry Jones is so good at being skeevy. Yeah, <laughs> I when, think it might be. Although it's partly the facial hair in this movie, I think the way <laughs> they have it, where it's like you can't, you can tell he can't quite grow a real beard, but he's trying super hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, when I, when Rose is like, you're acting like such a douche right now. I'm like, yeah, he is acting like such a douche right now. It's true. 
I mean, if we're talking about casting here, I kind of want to take us to the fact that I love Rod with my entire heart and soul. Yes. Let's talk about Rod. Tell (laughs) tell us about Rod, Terry. What do you think about him? Rod. I love Rod in this. He has this part, and it's a very tropey part of, like, the one person in the horror movie who figures everything out really early on and nobody believes them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's just been so rare, I think, in the history of horror to have that be a black man. And mm-hmm. I just love this for him, and I love his humor. Like, I love that this is a comedian who's doing this and handling this really intense, heavy situation, but also he's hilarious. And <laughs> I just, I love him. He's he's the hero he saves the damsel in the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, true. He sweeps in on his, his white horse. Which even further cements that Chris is a gothic horror damsel because usually men in horror movies save themselves. Chris has to be rescued. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rod is great because he provides so much of the levity of the film. And it's someone calling out the tropes, right? He is the guy who is telling him, like, this is wrong. Just get out of there right now. But yeah, it's, he's, yeah, gosh, he's so funny. He's so great. And I, I really loved the scene, too, when he goes to the cops to try to pitch the whole thing. So good. And so good. Yeah. Because uh, first of all, he's just like ridiculous, like when he's when he's doing it. But I also like the way because they totally play it in this way. Like he's he's telling it to a black cop, he's explaining it to her, and she gets very serious and it's like, hold on, like hold on a second, and she goes and gets like two other black cops. And for a second, you're thinking like, okay, they're gonna like they're gonna believe his theory, and then they just they start laughing at him. Yep. Uh, and his whole thing of like. But also like the comedy of that of like, we're the TSA, so maybe I know a little bit more than you. It's it's a it's a great scene. He's he's so great. And and that scene is it's honestly kind of hard to watch because he's so earnest and he's so serious and he's really trying Mm -hmm. to help his friend. And he does think that these other black people are gonna get him and believe him and they just laugh at him. And it's just oh, Mm -hmm. it's it's a tough scene on that level, although it's also really funny. Yeah. And yeah. it's just also that he's 100% right, as preposterous <laughs> as the whole thing sounds. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's the wonderful thing. When I got to the end of the movie, I looked back, I'm like, he was right every time. <laughs> every single thing that he said, even though it sounded comically exaggerated, you know, he busts out, sex slaves! <laughs> it's like, well... Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, what Andre out. became to that older white lady when, you know, Logan moves in and they talk about how they're, we're homebodies now, we're spending so much time in the house, wink, wink. And it's, Ooh, yeah. it's like, oh my God, <laughs> he was right. He was absolutely right. Little Rel Howie shot for two days. That's it. They got all that good stuff from him in two days of shooting. He's mostly on, like, he's mostly in the apartment, and then he's on a couple of, like, locations. So I could see that being a, a you know, two-day get him real right. quick. Yeah. Uh, but Apparently yeah, no. some of that was ad-libbed. I believe. Like, I mean, I believe that. Oh, I totally believe that. Yeah, like that. the part where he goes off about uh, Dahmer was ad-libbed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that killed that, me. I, that I 100% believe. That was so funny. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I want to mention uh, one other actor uh, real quick, and that is Stephen Root, uh, just because 
uh, you know, love Stephen Root, love <sighs> Barry, love He's so love good. Hughes. Um, I, I was particularly tickled by the scene because he is the one who uh, is going to have his brain put into Chris's body. And yeah. there's a scene where they, they talk briefly just before the procedure. And I really liked uh, the way I put it here in our show notes is uh, I'm not a racist monster, just a regular monster. <laughs> when when they're talking about, you know, like, why why black people? And he's like, ah, some people have this reason, that reason. Uh, but he's like, I don't really care what, what race you are. I just... I just want your body. So it's like, like, I don't, you know, I'm not racist, but I'm yeah. still a horrible human being. You're good at taking pictures and I'm hoping I'll get some of that by moving into you. Yeah. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it very much comes across in that way, at least to me, of white people going, I'm not racist, but because this yeah, is still, exactly. I'm not racist, but I still think I'm entitled to own your body means, yes, you are racist. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> He's still part of the system. Yeah. That is extremely racist and uh, horrifying. And the fact that, like, none of the white people in the movie admit that that's what they're doing, like, they keep trying to make it not about race when it is totally about race. One hundred percent. Yeah. Right. I, or it's a good thing that it's about race because it's like, ooh, we see you as, you know for all the great things. More beautiful and stronger and yeah. better physically, see. So we kinda and it's more fashionable, you know, we we kind of look up to you in a way. So with your bodies and our of course slightly superior minds, we'll be the perfect being together. Yeah, I think that comes in at the end when Dean, the father, is talking into the fireplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was unfortunately reminded of a a real life horrible human being, racist monster, uh, Joe Rogan, Mm -hmm. who had like a video not too long ago pop up about uh, because he said a, a ton of horrible things um mm. joe rogan sucks i just want to want to put that yep. on the record uh he said something about like oh white mind in a black body like how amazing like the perfect column <sighs> like oh good so i was just thinking of that the whole time through this <sighs> movie I'm like i don't want to be reminded of joe rogan gross yeah yeah, yeah. it sucks uh well steven root does uh it does prove himself to be a racist monster when he purchases Chris's body at the party. Let's talk about the party a bit here. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> oh, the party. <laughs> yeah. Nicole, All right. you, you ask, have you been to this party? I have been to this party, and I regret to say I have been at least one of those white people at the party, desperate to prove to a black person what a good white person I am. By emphasizing how much I know about black culture. Um, so, you know, and you get so eager to prove what a good white person you are that you commit like 17 microaggressions before you even know it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, those were my days when I was trying really hard to be not racist instead of anti-racist. So I've moved into the trying to be anti-racist. So we're working on that. Mm. But yeah, I I will admit I will, I will cop to it. <laughs> so. Hey, I mean, that's part of growth is right. Here's the ways that I was, uh, here's the ways I was terrible. <laughs> yeah. The uh, thing for me about the party, and this takes me to my note about the crash course in the art of the microaggression 
Mm-hmm. Is that even if you take this out of the horror situation and take it out of the purchasing the black bodies to own and live in, live through situation, nearly everything that was said at that party is something that either a white person has said to me personally or a white person has said to another black person I know. Mm-hmm. Nearly everything. Like they did not even have to try. I 100% believe that. Uh, yeah, I absolutely believe that. <laughs> I've seen that kind of thing happen, and it's... <sighs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what, what makes this movie work, because there's even some of it, having never seen it before, um, where I'm like, well, this is not how hypnosis works. <laughs> I'm watching this this scene, but like for all the things of like the horror trappings, the stuff that's like not believable about it, there is so much that is so believable and so grounded. And a lot of that is in the racism and the microaggressions where, yeah, I have heard people talk like how Bradley Whitford has when he's showing Chris around the house and showing him like, Oh yeah, the Jesse Owens thing. Like my, his, his greatest accomplishment was losing to Jesse Owens. And it's like, that doesn't sound the way that you think it does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that is not the brag that you think, you know, if it's like, Oh, like, yeah, you know, in a, Oh, a cool thing. Cool fact about my grandpa's. He also ran on the same team as Jesse Owens. That's like a more interesting fact than like he lost to Jesse Owens. Isn't that, doesn't that make him great? And he almost got over it. Yeah, he almost got over it. <laughs> Such uh, a great line. Yeah. And then all the stuff at the party, for sure, I have heard people say some variation or something similar. You know, I, I, I am not, I don't have clear memories of times that I have been that white person, but I wouldn't doubt if there have been times um, where I have in the past. And like you said, Nicole, this gives white audiences a perspective that's rare for them because it shows yeah. it so honestly right. that I think uh, for white audiences, some of the time it's like, oh, that's what we sound like. <laughs> like that's how yeah. cringy it is. <laughs> There's that, and every single encounter he has at the party, race comes up. So, like, mm-hmm. even if this wasn't a horror movie and it was just like a a social message movie, you would still get it because it's like. This guy can't just be a man attending a party. Mm-hmm. He is the black man at the party, and he's never allowed to forget it. Mm-hmm. And it's a hundred percent. You know that's something that really hit me. And I'm looking around my theater, going, "Guys, guys, this is. Uh, are you paying attention? Those are those are us. Those are <laughs> us. Don't do this stuff." I mean, the thing about this movie that I really love is it doesn't do anything to comfort the white members of the audience. Mm -hmm. I have shown this to a now former, it's a bit telling, friend of mine who literally cried after this movie, saying that this movie made her feel like there weren't any good white people. And I was just like, I'm not going to comfort you. You just need to sit with that. Yeah, because it's it's talking to an experience that you don't have, and you know what? It's okay, and it's good to be confronted with those different. Good if that made you cry, <laughs> that means that it showed you a different perspective, and you should internalize that mm-hmm. and and think about that. You know, and one one thing I really liked about uh, the performance, and I am forgetting his name, um, Daniel Kaluuya's performance. Uh, and it's it's very subtle. It only come, happens a few times, but the code switching yep. that mm-hmm. he does in this movie, 
was just like, oh man, like he is so drawing from his own experiences and perspective and like really like living in this character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can hear it. It's, it's subtle, but it's there in how he talks to Rod and then how he talks to Rose's parents. Yes. Absolutely. When, yeah, when, uh, well, um, also when he approaches, um, I'm trying to remember the, the grandfather. Oh, Georgina and Walter. Yeah, when he first approaches Walter, like on the grounds, and he's just trying to talk to him. Yeah, you know, the way that he is talking is just like so different from how he was talking to uh, Rose's parents, like you were saying. And uh, it's just, it's so small and so subtle, but it's like, again, so like, yeah, that is, that is real. And it sets him back on his heels every time too, when he first talks to Walter, and Walter turns and talks to him like an old white man, and <laughs> talks to Georgina, and she's very... She doesn't understand his slang. That scene is so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then when he tries to talk to Andre at the party, or Logan, and he turns around, and he's like, oh, well, he, Chris was just saying how he was more comfortable with my presence here. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. Chris is just Ooh. desperately trying to find somebody to confide in and just to be a, a safety valve for him to be like, you know, yeah, all these white people around kind of making me a little uncomfortable. And all of them are, what? I don't understand. Why would that be? My experience as an African-American has been largely positive. Right. For the five <laughs> weeks I've been in here. Yeah. And haven't left my house and haven't had to deal with the outside world. Yeah. 100%. Oh, I want to, I've mentioned this podcast numerous times on this show, but I was there too, is a, a wonderful podcast. And they had Marcus Henderson, who played Walter. The episode kind of talks about Django Unchained and this film. And they talk about that whole line, that whole, uh, the line of like, you know, top of the line, one <laughs> of a kind, that whole thing. It's, it's a great podcast. Another great episode. I suggest Fans of this film, go check that out uh, as well. This movie won the screenplay, or the screenplay Oscar, I should say, Best Original Screenplay. Uh, got an Academy Award for that. I think uh, I think very deservedly so. I think the acting uh, in this film brings the script alive, but because it's because these great actors we've talked about were given such good parts and such good lines mm-hmm. uh, to use. Right. And I don't know if you've seen Keegan-Michael Key's reaction to Jordan Peele winning the Academy Award is so incredibly pure and sweet. It was so adorable. Like, you could just see the love and how proud he was of his friend, and it was just so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, but yeah, absolutely. Tremendously well-deserved. Because, like I said, this is so tight. Everything comes back around you know at the beginning of the movie he chris says to rose that he's nervous he doesn't want to get chased off the lawn with a shotgun and at the end of the movie rose chases him out of the house with a rifle yep (laughs) with they hit the deer on the way in and it recalls the way his mother was hit by a car and then when he acts when he hits georgina with the car he can't stand to leave her there even though Mm -hmm. he knows it's dangerous and he goes and gets her and brings her in the car and they crash. And then when finally Rose is in the road 
bleeding out, it's finally when he manages to leave her behind. He manages to break this circle of guilt mm-hmm. that he's been feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's just, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> this is why this is why you need to have multiple drafts, people. Do not use your first draft script. <laughs> I yeah, I also really We've enjoyed, seen so many movies. Oh, like, where it's very they, clearly the first. Did draft. they read this more than once before they decide to start <laughs> shooting? <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, I, I did really enjoy Allison Williams's performance uh, in this movie. I think she oh, she's a, scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she really is. She did a, a real good job there. Yeah, she was she was fantastic. Like she was both completely believable as the fake loving girlfriend and completely believable as a part of that family. And the whole Rose the Keys scene where you see her just completely switch out of one character mm-hmm. and into the other was I was very impressed with her and I hadn't been impressed with her before that. right and that scene where she's talking to rod on the phone where Mm -hmm. she's using her sweet rose voice but her evil rose face that's not moving yeah she's just sort of dead behind the eyes while she's doing this Uh, that was that that was pretty good (laughs) i didn't know her from anything before i haven't i've never watched girls so i didn't know anything about allison williams before this movie neither but she plays it you know she rides the line where you're wondering for a really long time well you know maybe she's been hypnotized or something to be part of this but she really doesn't necessarily want to be and it's not until the end when they're trying to leave where Chris finds the photos and you're like, oh, (laughs) you almost believe that she is an innocent entrapped in all of this. And then you see that she's really not, which I think is another intentional thing, because we're taught to see young white women as innocent, like in an overall Mm -hmm. societal thing. And so I think it really plays with the fact that you're supposed to see her as innocent because we are taught as a society that that is what innocent looks like. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like Chris has been taught that he is what guilty looks like, which is why he just stands up and raises his hands when he sees what he thinks is a cop car coming. Oh, yeah. God. seeing that in the movie theater, my gut just dropped. I'm like, oh, he's dead. Oh, man. Yep. They're going to end this movie with him being dead. That's horrible. Totally felt that. I really wanted him to get out of this. Totally felt that. Yeah. I saw the red and blue lights. I'm like, oh, God, he's just dead now. Nobody, right. they're not going to listen to a word he says. He's just dead. Nope. Yep. Strangling a white lady in the middle of the road. Yep. They're they're not going to listen to a damn thing. Mm-hmm. You know, this- which, yeah, which uh, I think that brings us to the alternate ending of this film that was originally shot, which was uh, far more along those lines where it wasn't Rod who was there to save the day. Um, but it was actually, in fact, uh, the the cops uh, had come and were arresting Chris. Um, and then Rod beats him in, in jail uh, in the after fact. But the, it was very much, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was the original ending. And Jordan Peele decided that the film needed a happier ending, but felt the moment when the audience believes Chris is about to be arrested would preserve the intended reaction. Mm. And, and I think it does. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Does. Totally. Absolutely. It's just, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And then the door opens and it says airport on it. 
Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. everybody in the theater was like, yay! Yeah. Rod, the hero, has ridden in on his white Ford Taurus sedan <laughs> to <Yeah>. save the day. <laughs> and there are people who will reject this movie and not talk about it just for its, its central themes. But I think having that original ending as it was, I think this film would have been a lot more divisive, kind of in general, than what we got, which is, you know, general praise uh, for this film. But I think it does, he does preserve kind of that thought because it totally, it's like, yep. He would get arrested in this situation, huh? He and, totally uh, would. They completely played that up, and he's prepared for it. He knows who he is and yeah. how the world reacts to him. So he, it's completely convinced that he's just going to be arrested over this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of glad um, that Peel went for the the happier ending. I guess because it's cathartic, right? It's like, right. Oh, okay, Rod's there. Like, okay, Chris is getting away. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, not only does the, you know, the quote-unquote final girl get away at the end, but it's Rod who gets to come in and save the day. And the first words out of his mouth in the car, I told you not to go in that house. (laughs) (laughs) Because he just can't help himself. Yeah, I almost... I I almost don't know how I feel about that line being, like, immediate there. Well, there's a there's a few beats that he waits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. So Jordan Peele categorizes this movie not as a horror movie because when uh, this movie was released, it was it was nominated for best comedy at the Golden Globes because that uh, award category is meaningless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's basically like we don't really know where to put this film comedy, I guess. Also, they're all drunk at the Golden Globes. So also that. <laughs> Uh, but Jordan Peele, his response to that was like, no, this movie is not a comedy, but it's not uh, necessarily a horror movie either. It is a social thriller. Agree or disagree, Nicole? You asked that question pointedly in there. I'll, I'll turn this to you, Terry. First, uh, do you think this is more a horror movie or does it fall into that category of social thriller, as Jordan Peele uh, says? I can see social thriller as a subset of horror. I think that horror is a very, very large umbrella and that a lot of things fall under it and a lot of things toe that line between thriller and horror. And that a lot of people will argue about what makes something horror and what doesn't. And people who are committed to not liking horror will decide (laughs) that something is not horror because they like it. I see that happening a lot. Mm. And so I do feel like this is a horror movie. I feel like this belongs in the black horror canon. I feel like it kind of relaunched the black horror canon for the 21st century. But I can see this sort of a thriller being a subset i can see Mm. calling it a thriller Mm. and a horror movie i think it's Mm. both okay uh nicole what what was your thoughts on it i mean i think it's a horror movie i think of it as a a social horror movie where it's pointing out horrible things going on in society using standard horror tropes to help draw that out but it's so skillful at it. People don't want to, I think because there's such strong social commentary in it, people don't want to think of it as horror. And people who think horror doesn't usually have social commentary are not paying attention <laughs> to horror movies. Big time. Yeah. Uh, 
So, you know, if you come away from Night of the Living Dead not understanding that it's social commentary, you something is terribly wrong with you and you need to watch it again. Uh, <laughs> or people who complain and say, you know, oh, you know, I just want to go to a horror movie where I just unplug my brain and just watch some, you know, I just want to be entertained. It's like you're you're not paying attention to what, <laughs> to what's going on here. There's always something going on that's being talked about that's not being said out loud necessarily. All mm. the time, even in what people consider like silly or mindless horror, even in what people consider simplistic horror, there's still always themes. There's themes of othering. There's themes of monstrosity. Like that's always there. Even if nothing else is, that's always there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like even the Friday the 13th movies, it's like, oh, you know, promiscuity is going to get you killed, kids. <laughs> you know, be, uh, be more alert to your surroundings. <laughs> so. Yeah. But, I, I. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think a lot of things get classed as other categories that definitely fall under horror. You know, Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie. Jaws is a horror movie. I don't quite understand how people would class them any other way, but I think it's what you said, Terry. It's people who don't want to admit that they liked a horror movie, (laughs) you know, so because they liked it, it, therefore it cannot be horror. Absolutely. I just, as a lifelong diehard horror fan, I have seen people try to backpedal nearly every horror movie out of horror, claiming that they don't like horror, but they like this, and therefore this can't be horror. And that's just not how that works. Right. And I mean, guys, when Terry says that she is a diehard horror fan, I have seen the photo of her being strangled by Kane Hodder before he wasn't allowed to do that anymore. (laughs) photo opportunity he told me it would be an honor for him to kill me in a horror movie one day and it was the greatest day of my life Ah. (laughs) that's funny i think uh i think thriller yeah because thriller is its own genre that some might argue is kind of dead at this point or at least not as popular as it once was i think the two share like enough dna that films like this could kind of ride that line Mm -hmm. Uh, but this movie definitely he's trying to evoke a certain feeling in a certain sense you know, there's a number of jump scares in this movie and whatever your feelings on on jump scares, you know, what have you. I think that's where a lot of the horror comes in. But I, I think, well, not a lot of the horror. Or, what, how am I trying to phrase this? There's a lot of dread. There's a lot of dread. That's what I, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. It's like there's just it's that impending feeling of dread. Uh, that is like all throughout this film. And the, then like the blood does come in towards the end. Um, and it is actually... Because up to this point, we had not really had any blood in the film. It's pretty jarring mm-hmm. uh, for yeah. it to happen. Especially the operating theater scene where all of a sudden we're in the middle of a Cronenberg movie with the sort of ritualistic black space and the white surgical drapes. lit. Yeah. <laughs> that well, is I mean, not... it's not just... A medical procedure. This is like a... It's religious. It's almost religious. Yeah, there's this whole lore that Jordan Peele had written out and planned out um, about this secret society that Rose's family belongs to. And so this is part of an ancient ritual for them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not a sterile environment. No. <laughs> when when he just walks out like of bad the, sterile practices. <laughs> yeah, he just walks out of that room and like his mask is pulled down. I'm like, "My dude, you just undid so much work <laughs> that you would have to do." Poor Stephen Root with his exposed brain. Yeah. Just sitting over there. Yeah. They do that neat trick where they only show you in the reflection of his um eye protection. Oh, but it's still so gross. Ugh. <laughs> It, because there had not been any gore up to this point, and it's a, and it's a brain, yeah. and it's so anatomical, it was like, oh. <laughs> I mean, but your average, like, medical drama is at least that gory, so it's just a question of setting there, you know? It's true. Right. And, well, and the music over it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, right. That, that feeling. Um, I, almost, I almost was going to ding this movie because there's that scene where like the video is shown to him about the mm-hmm. procedure and like there's the the old man talking to him about it and I'm like the the only reason they're showing this video is for the audience's sake. Yeah. And then they they justify it with like oh the procedure goes better if you understand what's happening. I'm like okay, at least you acknowledged that you're just doing this. Like that line felt very meta to me. Where it's like Jordan Peele wants you to understand what's going to happen, but he also knows that it can't just be out of nowhere because then it's just like the bad guy's monologuing. So he's going to throw in a line of like, oh, it goes better if you know why we're doing this. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Right. I mean, it's kind of like the expository lecture in The Human Centipede. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> that's the creepiest part of the whole movie in there except that's way way scarier yeah <laughs> like yeah. that scene is literally the scariest thing about that movie despite whatever else happens mm, it's not the grossest thing but it's the scariest yeah thing exactly it's not the grossest yeah. thing but it's the scariest thing and on that level it's actually really effective but that's what it kind of reminded me of except i do think it was overdone exposition to make it make sense to the audience. Mm -hmm. And I think it could have been less, honestly, and still have made sense to the audience. Yeah. I think it it could have been a little less. Um, Jordan Peele explained it as said that this bit was modeled after Morpheus explaining to Neo what the Matrix is. And he, he debated about how much information to give. But he finally decided, you know, when the answer is is satisfying, you feel like you've been given a gift hmm. of this information. Hmm. So that's how he he felt he needed to throw it in there. And, you know, while I don't usually like talking down to an audience, sometimes you do have to simplify it for parts of the audience. Sometimes you do have to give that little extra bit of information for people, especially if people haven't watched a lot of horror movies. I think a lot of people went to see this movie who don't normally go to horror movies yeah. because it was this, uh, it was this zeitgeist moment when it first came out and it was getting tremendous reviews everywhere. And people say, Oh, well, and it got nominated for best picture. So I think a lot of people said, Oh, well, let's, we should go see this we should go you know and check this out yeah there were a lot of intersections going on here because you had like the 
black audience that's going to support a movie with a black protagonist and mostly black characters and are interested in like the racial dynamics going on here. Then you've got the fact that Jordan Peele had a huge fan base, which mostly wasn't into horror. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But were still such big fans of his that they were willing to go on this journey with him. And then you had people who were just into horror and were into it as a horror film. And you had some people who were, you know, overlapping Venn diagrams of all of those things. But yeah, it just, the the unique combination of the people in the movie, the person making the movie, and what the movie was about probably pulled in just a juggernaut of audience that wouldn't normally see any of those things if they were encapsulated as opposed to overlapping. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and it had a huge audience. It was made for like four and a half million and brought in 180 uh, so yeah, Blumhouse it, Pictures. Yeah, that's how they work. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're not a horror audience, you know, cinema has its own language. And if you watch enough movies, you learn cinematic language and certain tricks of like from where the camera is positioned, you get this kind of mood. You, you know, if your camera's set up a certain way in a horror movie, you assume that when that person turns around, there's going to be something horrible behind them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just these little conventions that over time you learn and internalize. And so some, but sometimes you need an explanation for people who haven't, who don't know the horror dialect of cinematic language. You know, you've yeah. got the comedy dialectic, you've got the horror dialect, you've got the romantic comedy dialect all its own usually annoying um <laughs> but it's so yeah so i think you need the extra explanation for to make sure you reach as many people as possible yeah i i think it works well enough in this film um i think they they spend just long enough on it that it's like okay if you get it you get it if you don't well you're not going to at this point so let's just move on certainly certainly not uh a, a trend that he would continue in future films such as us uh which is a little over explainy from my understanding but but last up before we walk out of here let's talk about the sunken place yes nicole you just you just added this desperately to our show doc i realize yes oh my god we haven't talked about that it's so important <laughs> so please uh the one thing well, I mean, number one, it's amazing. It looks amazing. They're doing um, dry for wet technique here to make Chris look like he's floating. They have him on wires. They have a wind machine going to make his clothes ripple to make it look almost like he's underwater. And they've got they added the particles later in post. But it's just so amazing. You know, it's him trapped in his own mind, but unable to communicate. And something I learned from the commentary that I thought was amazing that I did not know is apparently everyone's sunken place looks different. Mm. So everyone's room that they're in in the sunken place looks different to them, apparently. Mm. So, but Chris's, the way he sees the world is through a little screen, like a TV set. Uh. <laughs> When he, when his mom. That's amazing. Yeah. But that was something, that was an experience. I'm sorry that you missed in the theater, David, because the moment Chris 
we see him literally sink into his chair and then fall and the boy sink into his bed at the same time little boy chris and then we see chris floating in the void the theater went silent and we were all just like "Ooh, that's so cool what is yeah. that I could see that being a really, really good theatrical moment. And it's become not just a meme, it's a, or it's, it's become a meme along with other things. Like it's a, it's part of the thing <laughs> that I, people use on a regular basis. I you know, do, so-and-so is in the sunken place. Yeah, it's worked its way in into the vernacular, definitely. Oh, vernacular, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yes. I hear it most often about Kanye West, but. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, boy. Well, we don't, we don't have another hour to break down Kanye, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. But we, we have had a great hour just scratching the surface, I would say, of Get Out. Um, talked about some of the, the big points on it, but we could certainly spend much more time talking about the writing, talking about the acting, uh, talking about Jordan Peele's directing, breaking down all the different beats of the movie. Unfortunately, we just don't have the time. Uh, so maybe maybe one day we'll do a follow-up. And of course, we're going to have to have Terry here with us. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you should you wish to be found? Okay, where can people find me? I have been in some hiding lately. I've got some things coming down the pipes that I unfortunately can't advertise yet. So you'll have to check back in with me. (laughs) But I do have a Facebook fan page under Terry Lynn Hudson if people want to hang out there and just wait to see what happens. All right, well, check that out. And once, uh, once time comes for where you can reveal these projects uh we'll make sure to to promote it to pass it on awesome. uh, because we love having you on and, and can't wait to have you back on again thank you this is always fun it's always fun having you nicole where can people find you uh well first i want to give extra thanks to terry for coming on and for being the one who who picked the movie out of my large list of potential future classics i think i gave her 21 movies to pick from she's like ah this is too many (laughs) it was hard we were this close this close to hearing me complain about the hidden faces in midsummer for an hour (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's spoilers that that's coming at some point um (laughs) yeah so thank you again for coming on and doing this with us i've been so looking forward to talking about this movie and I am on Letterboxd at Nicole underscore Davis, and I got to go update our list of episodes over there. Yeah, check it out. If people want to find me, it's Davluz, D-A-V-L-U-Z, turn on Instagram, find me there. I am well aware that uh, neither of those sounds is the actual vowel or the uh, syn- the syllable sounds that are found in my name. But I made the decision of how it's pronounced because it's my username, dang it. And speaking of usernames... <laughs> we can't call it Dave Luz? <laughs> nope, don't want it. Uh, <laughs> you can also follow Brett, even though he was not here. 
go over, check him out. I am Brett Stewart. Uh, you can find him on Twitter there. And of course, you can find the show social.mgrpodcast.com. That's all of our socials there. You can also email us. We'd love to hear from you. Email us hi at mgrpodcast.com. That's going to do it for us. As a reminder, next we will be talking about Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Make sure to tune in for that episode. It's it's going to be a lot of fun. I already know it. Uh, that's going to do it for us here, for myself, for Nicole, for Brett, and for Terry. I don't remember what uh, Brett says at the very end of the show, but uh, we'll run, see you next run, time. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. Don't give the farmer his fun, fun, fun. He'll get by without his rabbit pie. So run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run.